Well, please keep your Bibles open at Acts chapter 8 there. We're going to spend a bit more time looking at that together now, but please um, join me in prayer as we begin. Heavenly Father, we do pray that your spirit will be amongst us this morning, uh, that even though we are physically separated, that your one spirit and our common faith in Jesus may draw us together, uh, may encourage us to love one another to your praise and glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've just got two points that we're going to be looking at today, I'm gonna, and I'm going to jump straight into the first one, and then hopefully at the end we'll be able to draw them together uh, to see what they have in common. So our first point is that what looks like the destruction of the church is actually God working to grow it. What looks like the destruction is actually God working to grow the church. You notice that in verse 1, our passage begins with the words, on that day. Now that day was a pretty memorable day in a bad kind of way. It was the day that Stephen, who we heard about last week, one of the leaders in the church, that Stephen was stoned to death and became the first Christian martyr. And that moment, that day, it says, was the trigger that really opened the floodgates to a mass scale persecution like the church had not seen before. There had certainly been persecution beforehand, but this was a whole new level. Whatever was holding them back before isn't holding back the persecutors now. It's like there is blood in the water and the sharks are gathering. There is a feeding frenzy. And one of those sharks is a young man named Saul. He is systematic and purposeful in his persecution. Check out what it says in verse 3. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Now, you might remember that we were briefly introduced to Saul last week, and here we see him taking the lead in the persecution. And his purpose is clear. He wants to destroy the church. He's tearing it apart piece by piece, and it seems like it's working. It says in verse 1 that all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. The church, it says, was scattered. This looks like the end. You see, the Jerusalem church had grown over these past times that we've been looking to thousands of people, but now only the apostles are left. It's even smaller than it was at the very beginning of Acts. Imagine how demoralizing this must have been. This looks like the destruction of the church because there isn't really one anymore. It's been scattered. Yeah, the very word church means a gathering. The church is God gathering his people, and that's what they did. They gathered. They gathered to praise God. They gathered to encourage each other, but now they're scattered. Now, this is one of the reasons that the church as a gathering is one of the reasons why church in lockdown is so difficult, because we can't gather physically. We can't properly church together. And that's also, I have to say, why it's all the more important that during lockdown, we make all the more effort to stay connected in ways that we can, to gather, so to speak, online. Now, it's not perfect. Nobody really loves Zoom morning teas and Zoom Bible study and connecting online only, but, you know, it's better than nothing. It's a way to gather while we can't physically gather so that we can still encourage each other, 
so that we can still praise God together. It's not forever. And we will be better off in the long run if we have gathered in this way than if we haven't gathered at all. That's just a bit of an aside on our kind of gathering at the moment. But I hope you can see how serious it is to say here that the church has been scattered. The gathering has been scattered. It's like to say the church has been de-churched. It looks like it's all over. Kind of like, you know, when you, you kick a campfire to scatter the, the embers, to put it out, and so the embers slowly die and grow cold. They lose their heat. That's what it looks like is happening here. But, of course, that's not the end of the story. And the clue, the clue is in verse 1. Have a look at where the church was scattered to. It says in verse 1, they were scattered from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. And if we've been reading from the beginning of Acts, which we have, those words should set off alarm bells for us. The words from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria should be like a flashing neon sign because we've heard those words before. Right back near the beginning at chapter 1, verse 8, before Jesus went back to heaven, he left his apostles instructions for how they were to grow his church and what they needed to do. He said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. See, it was Jesus' plan from the beginning for his message to begin in Jerusalem and then to spread to Judea and Samaria. Judea and Samaria is kind of like saying from Sydney to New South Wales and Canberra, that sort of thing. But, but up until this point, it had only been in Jerusalem. They'd been witnessing about Jesus in Jerusalem, but that's as far as the message had gone until now. So have a look at what happens when the church is scattered in verse 4. I'm going to read from verse 4 down to verse 8. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralysed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. And now I'm going to read down, to, down in verse 12. When they believed Philip... As he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptised, both men and women. You see what happened? What looked like the destruction of the church as it was scattered was actually the beginning of the next stage of growth. The church was scattered, but it certainly was not destroyed. It grew all the more. Saul was the guy kicking the fire, trying to scatter it to put it out. And that's what should have happened. But God had other plans. You know, here in the Hawkesbury, we're not unfamiliar with fire and the dangers that fire can pose, how unpredictable it can be, how it is not easily tamed. We know that you've got to be careful when you kick a campfire, when you try and scatter the embers to put it out, because if you're not careful, the opposite can happen. Those scattered embers can cause spot fires and an even bigger blaze can start, which is why you've got to make sure that you don't do it on a windy day. Well, that's what happened here. 
the wind of God, the spirit of God was blowing a gale and the message of Jesus spread and grew. This persecution was meant to destroy the church and it looked like it was working. It would have felt like it was working, but it turns out the opposite was true. This persecution was the vehicle that God used to begin the next stage of his mission. Mission. And so the message of Jesus spread. What looked like the destruction of the church was actually God working to grow it. This was God at work. We see it here and we see it at other times in history as well. God working through persecution and difficulty to advance his kingdom. It makes me think of what happened in China in the 20th century. At the beginning, in, in the first half of the 1900s, It looked like Christianity was on the rise in China. But there was increasing social pressure against Chinese Christians and against foreign missionaries in China. And when the Communist Party came to power, that increased all the more until it became all-out persecution, expelling foreign missionaries and actively trying to destroy the church like Saul did. And at that point, Christians around the world thought, well, that's it, that's the end of Christianity in China because that's what it looked like. But they couldn't have been more wrong. When China finally opened its doors again to the outside world, it turns out the opposite was true. Despite persecution, despite being massively under-resourced, the underground church had been growing like no one could have imagined or predicted. Just like in Acts, what looked like the destruction of the church was actually God working to grow his kingdom, even if we couldn't see it or understand it at the time. And I think the the point for us here is clear. What looks like a danger and a threat is no threat to God. And that should be an encouragement for us. You know, the, the title of this series in Acts that we're doing at the moment is Unstoppable Gospel. I wonder... Do you feel like you are part of something unstoppable right now in our current social climate? Do you know that your faith is part of the unstoppable work of God? We keep hearing statistics about how Christianity is in a fatal nosedive and the media are often doing what they can to try to make it seem like the death bell is ringing, that the fire is going out, and it can be easy to feel defeated when we hear that and when we see what is going on around us. It's one thing to kind of look back in hindsight and say, well, I can see now what God was doing in that situation. But it's harder, isn't it, when you're, when you're in the moment? This is where trusting God makes such a difference. We can't see the future, but we can trust God that he knows what he is doing. It might look bad to us, but it's entirely in God's control. And who knows how he will use this moment for the future of his kingdom. And maybe we are moving back to a time in the West where Christianity is more of a persecuted minority. But that's not a threat to God and his plans. It's just normal. It's just that we're not used to that. Whatever happens... We need to believe this, that God is working to grow his kingdom and that no amount of opposition can destroy it.
That's our first point. And it brings us to our second part of our passage where we discover that the real danger to the church is not persecution from the outside. The real danger is the hearts of the people within the church. And it tells us that following Jesus must change what we value and what we are impressed by. Following Jesus must change what we value and are impressed by. You notice that the the second part of this passage introduces us to the fairly memorable character named Simon. Simon is now famous for the wrong reasons. He has the unenviable, unenviable reputation of having an entire type of sin named after him. Simoni, Simoni, has become known as the practice of trying to buy or sell spiritual benefits of some kind, whether it's a position or an office in the church or religious artefacts or something that was thought to to grant some kind of spiritual blessing. That's the reputation that Simon has unfortunately created for himself because of his actions here. But, you know, I wonder as I read this whether there might be something wider going on here that we need to be even more wary of. And it's this. It's it's the danger of putting a Christian veneer, a Christian kind of covering on what we value from the world and calling it spiritual, calling it Christian. Now, have a look with me at what Simon valued before he heard about Jesus. You see from verse 9 and 10. In verse 9, people in Samaria were amazed by him. He could do some amazing things. And he boasted that he was someone great. And it seems that his actions backed that up and the people thought that of him. Verse 10, it says, people high and low were impressed by him. They said he was someone great. He, He received their attention and their amazement. He received the praise of the people around him. This is what Simon valued. This is what Simon had success in until the message of Jesus came to Samaria. And at that point, the people in Samaria stopped being amazed by just miraculous powers and started being amazed and and being convicted by the message of Jesus that Philip was preaching. In verse 12, it says that what made the difference for them is that they believed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. But for Simon, it was a bit different. He also believed and was baptised, it says, but the thing that really impresses him doesn't seem to have changed all that much. Have a look at what it says in verse 13. Simon himself believed and was baptised, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles that he saw. You see what Simon really values? He continues to be impressed by miraculous power. That's not the heart of the message, but that's what captures Simon's attention. And I think that's a warning sign for what follows as we read further down. When the apostles come from Jerusalem and the Samaritans receive the Holy Spirit, which authenticates the Samaritan conversion, that's that's why the apostles had to be there. It's saying that this thing in Samaria is the same thing that happened in Jerusalem back at Pentecost. The Samaritan church is a genuine apostolic church commissioned by Jesus. But the thing that Simon notices is that the apostles seem to have some kind of special ability. And that gives them authority and influence, he sees. And to him, it looks like the same kind of authority and influence that he had before 
but now he wants the Christian version of that. He's putting a Christian label on what he already valued and wanted in life. And that, I think, points to the real challenge for us. The temptation to take the kind of things that we value in the world, impressive skills, positions of authority and influence, leadership abilities, the ability to attract people's attention and following, social influence, charismatic personality, or whatever it might be, and to kind of baptise those things, so to speak, as what we value for ourselves and in the church. That's not how it should be. The thing that changed for these new Christians in Samaria is not just that they saw better miracles, it's that they believed the good news of the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is an upside-down kingdom compared to the world, where the first will be last and the last will be first. The kingdom of God has a king who is a servant, who has the very nature of God, but who humbled himself and made himself nothing. That's the king we follow, and that's the values of his kingdom. And we need to let that kingdom and those kingdom values change what we value too. You know, there's a reason why the Bible says don't rank each other according to the different ways that we serve in in church or our position or reputation or our different gifts so that, you know, we aspire to to greatness or status or otherwise, you know, we we are drawn towards jealousy and resentment as we look to other people. And that can be a real issue in churches where we seek reputation and status and identity in just the way that the world does, but with kind of a Christian veneer, a Christian covering over it. And I think this is the real challenge for us. Now, it's not saying don't do anything that people might think is impressive or that people might thank you for. That's not the solution. But it is saying, what's your heart? What's your heart? Because that was Simon's issue. You see it there in verse 21 and 22. Peter says to him, you have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. Simon's heart was not right. And you know, I wonder if the reason that we're not told what the final outcome was for Simon is to help us to put ourselves in his shoes so that we watch our own hearts in this regard, so that we hear that call to repent when we need to, that whatever we do or have, however we serve or whatever gifts we might have, the Christian life must always be lived at the foot of the cross as forgiven sinners, turning to Jesus in repentance and trust, following his example of the humble servant king. That's the currency that we should value in the kingdom of God. And if I could just finish now by briefly trying to tie together the two points that we've looked at today, that is what looks like the destruction of the church is actually God working to grow it and 
Jesus must change what we value and are impressed by. Both of these things show us that actually trusting God must lie at the heart of the Christian life. Yeah, it might look like the attacks against the church, whether physical or political or social, it might look like they're going to destroy it. But God says, trust me, I've got this under control. That's not what matters. Or again, it might seem like impressiveness and ability is what really matters. But God says, trust me and live differently to that. That's what it looks like to be part of the unstoppable gospel. God wants us to trust him. Not blind faith, so to speak, but relying on him because he has shown himself to be trustworthy. Trusting that God has things under control. That he knows what he's doing. That's what will make the difference as we seek to live with the confidence and the character of someone who follows Jesus as our King. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we do live in an upside-down kingdom compared to the world, where the first are last and the last are first, where what seems like defeat actually turns out for victory, where what we value is not what you value. Father, we ask that you help us to believe, to trust that, and to so transform our hearts and our confidence in you that you enable us to live with that confidence and with that character that your son Jesus has demonstrated for us. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.